Hi, this is a podcast for the best bits of the Breakfasters. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Triple R. I made golden syrup dumplings last night. Whoa. Oh, my God, what a dream. Yes, I know, right? Did you used to have them growing up? Mum did golden syrup pudding, which I think is just like dumplings, but one just one, not the individual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's yum. Um, in our house, it was a a bit of a staple. Like a you know Sunday night, it'd be um, it, it, like the two main desserts in our house were apple crumble or golden syrup dumplings. Um, and I don't think I've made golden syrup dumplings since I was a teenager. <laughs> like it's been such a long time. Um, and also we we used to make them um, when we went uh, camping, like it, as girl guides, it was like, you know, you make golden syrup dumplings in the billy and put it on the fire. Yeah. Yeah, it was really good. Um, except when I was a guide, there was one camp that we went on and they said, oh, Jordan, you look after the fire. Um, and they may have said, look after the golden syrup dumplings as well. But I heard, look after the fire. And I made that fire so good. Like, I was like, oh, kept this fire, putting more wood on it, or getting a good amount of heat on that. And then, you know, the guide leader came along like a few minutes later and was like, what have you done to these dumplings? And they were just all burnt. (laughs) But the fire was, you know, level one fire. It was so good. Can I ask Um, a stupid question? What even is a golden syrup dumpling then? What is just bread with golden syrup? No, it's like you make the dumplings is just like um, butter and flour and, um, and an egg and you add a bit of milk. And you just made like this this kind of dough. Oh. You don't you know you don't need it or, or anything, but and then you just get spoonfuls of that and roll and then put it in the in the syrup, which is like water and sugar and golden syrup and oh, butter. God. Yeah. So it looks like sweet and sour pork. So <laughs> oh. I mean, does it? I mean, it's a ball and it's glistening. But anyway. it got yeah, a little bit, but it 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 expands when you put it in. So it mm. gets like fluffy as it expands out and yeah, covered in this delicious syrup. Um, and like you cook it and the syrup, you know, condenses down anyway, it gets real yum. And it's also really nice the next day um, if you've got leftovers. Um, but we had this, um, this Billy who, that I'd burnt golden syrup dumplings into. They, um, when I was at the end of the camp, they were just like, we can't get this clean. You just take it. Just take it home with you. Like, All right. And then like maybe two years later at the end, when I'd finished Girl Guys, I got my um, – when you get your BP award, it's like the highest award in guiding. I don't know how I got it, but I did. So nerdy. Anyway, I got it. <laughs> And then you get like a big – this is like a big presentation night um, that you have. And on this night I bought the billy back and oh. it was clean. I'm like, here's the oh, clean billy back. Beautiful. Um, so symbolic. Yeah, it was. So nerdy. Anyway, we thought it was hilarious. Um, <laughs> but I, I messaged um, I messaged my mum um, yesterday uh, 
asking if she had the the recipe for golden soup dumplings because I was like because we there was this one recipe that we'd always use and it, you could tell we always use it because it you know it was the dirtiest page in the recipe book um and also I'd written in big like block letters the best next to golden <laughs> soup dumplings anyway um uh I mentioned last week that mum um Mum had been in hospital and I thought, uh, we all thought that she was fine and nothing had happened. Turns out she'd had a stroke, but she is absolutely fine. Um, well, it seems that way because when I sent her this message saying, um, can you, do you still have the recipe for golden syrup dumplings? She responded with, have you got another Billy to burn? Oh. <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, that stroke hasn't affected you much. No, exactly. Institutional oh, okay. knowledge. A sick burn about a burn. Sticky <laughs> um, burns. <laughs> and then she sent me the wrong recipe. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, but I, you know, I made it and it was delicious and it was um, – <clears throat> And it was, and it's it was also that nervous thing of um, wanting to. This is because this is the first time I'd made it for Kath, and I'm like, if you don't like our favourite family dessert, then I don't know what's going to happen. Mm. And it's that every time I make something for Kath, which happens so rarely. I as soon as I give it to her, I like just stare at her intently while she takes those first couple of mouthfuls, and I'm just like staring at her, waiting for her to go. You know, this is great. Yum, I love it. Um, but just get sorry, go. Oh no, I was just gonna say it's so it's funny how much pleasure I just listened to you talk about this food is giving at the moment. Like it's mm. all weekend our conversations were about food and I sat in bed two nights in a row reading a cookbook um, and it was making me so joy. And just reading out to Andrew like cake recipes and going, look at this ginger butternut cake and then I'd read what was in it and you go, oh, that's one for the – and then I'd be like, look at this bread and butter pudding thing and then I'd read him the ingredients and, you know, it's just yeah. listening to you talk about this, I can just relate so – heavily right now to the joy like that food is bringing in in an otherwise fairly joyless space at the moment do you know what else it was it was making it and because I hadn't made it since I was a teenager but having all those memories come back of like I don't need the recipe I remember what you know I'm adding a little bit of milk and just like you know because you have to rub the butter into the flour and I was just like I remember this and I remember like it's supposed to have the consistency of like fine bread crumbs at the end and I'm like, there's my bread crumbs. I've got it. It's Mm. there, you know. Um, And it was just, yeah, it was nice. Anyway, Kath ended up, you know, she goes, oh, this is really great. It's, you know, very nice. And I'm like, thank goodness. I was worried that I'd get this, oh, it's a bit sweet or, or, you know. But now that How's how's the pan looking? Oh, (laughs) So good. I wanted – I did take a photo of, of the golden dumplings and send it to the family text and everyone was just like, oh, lovely, yum, yum, Um And then I was almost going to send a pick of the bottom of the pan to mum just to get it back and say, yeah, no problems with this pan. Triple R. I cannot think of anything that needs – to be celebrated less. But today, um, I think this is an American thing, today is National Couples Day. 
Oh. <laughs> I know. Well, it's Valentine's Day then. That's for single people trying to get into a couple. Oh. And then, um, so, because that's, it's far enough back. Valentine's Day, 14th, you meet, you know, you go on your first, oh, I like you, oh, I like you too. Go on a date, start dating, and then you're all set for National Couples Day on August 18th. Right. And, um, what, Any what guidelines is, for how one would celebrate National Couples Day? Yes, I did look this up. Um, there's um, here's some National Couples Day activities: um, cook a romantic meal together. Um, food is the ultimate connector. Try recreating your favourite meal to eat together, whether it be a filet mignon or frozen chicken nuggets. What's important is you're doing it with each other. <laughs> Frozen not, chicken nuggets, they know my relationship well. Yeah. Um, or And also, here's another one, probably touching at this point in time, um, plan a special date night. If you're a couple that lives together, you might not go out as much as you used to. Take this time to leave the house, explore the town and see that new movie you've both been excited about. You've earned it. We sure have, but we'll wait six months before we can do that. Going for a 20-minute walk around the block. Yeah. <laughs> but before 8 o'clock. Um, and this one, I love, this is, this is there's only three things you can do. Um, number three, share your love with the gram. Everyone loves a cute couple's photos post. Oh, share your love to Instagram with the hashtag, hashtag National Couples Day. Right, so I did some um, further investigation into this and I discovered there is a, um, a page uh, where it offers um, captions for your – it's 100 funny couples captions for Instagram to share on National Couples Day. Oh, my God. Okay. It gets <laughs> – like pick a number and I'll tell you between 1 and 100. And eight. Number eight. <clears throat> uh, we go along like peanut butter and jelly. Oh. <laughs> Another number. 39. Okay. Some of these are really bad. Actually, they're all pretty bad. Um, 39. The perfect couple, yeah, they fart and fight too. All right. Oh, mate, TMI. <laughs> couple stays cancelled. <laughs> I'll, pay, I'll pay one of you 10 bucks to post a sincere picture of you and your partners with that, with that, with that line, the um, number 39, that's yeah. big, you don't want to, all right, I'll do that, no problem. Um, <laughs> Is the idea that you would post, what, some kind of Dutch oven action shot? <laughs> but it's, I like to imagine what kind of, yeah, what photo you want to go with the certainly certain captions. Like um, there's this one, oh, this one followed me home. Can I keep them? <laughs> Oh, that is like dark. A, like a cute little pup. Also, they didn't say, dark. can I keep them? They said, can I keep him slash her? <clears throat> um, oh, how about this? Is, this one's a bit of fun. Guess what? We both like taking long romantic walks to the fridge. Oh. <laughs> it's just a couple's day. Get on board. Get on board. Uh uh, what about um, – anything now maybe I'm on board couples day because I feel like it's making coupledom look just horrific. Like if I was single and people were posting this, I'd be like, I feel great about myself. 
like that you think. Oh yes, I, yeah, yeah. Not yeah. only that, that your relationship is taking walks to the fridge, but also that you think that's funny. Um, that maybe somehow being in a couple has made you that way. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it's what like um. How about this one? We're in a cute long relationship where everyone is like, "Dang, they're still together." Oh, <laughs> this is terrible. Pretty glad we both swiped right. That's that's very um modern, isn't it? Any anyway. So, dang, they're still together is a positive caption. Yeah, I guess maybe, or maybe it's the like uh, um against all the odds. Yeah, it's still together, like the Shania Twain song. <laughs> He's my favourite person to text 143 times a day. Mm. What would your caption be if you're going to do this, do you think, today? Um, oh, no. I like that at this very moment people at home can't see this, but Kath just entered the room and gave Geraldine her morning coffee. It was yeah. a very couple. Big, big froth. Couple well. Mm. Yeah, she's nailed that coffee. Um, just like she's um, <laughs> nailed. <laughs> Watch out. Jesus. <laughs> Our love life. Triple R. Fee writes here to bring books to breakfasters. Morning, Fee, seated proudly in front of your radiothon banner. <laughs> yeah, luckily listeners can't see how much I uh, phoned that in, repurposing <laughs> my, my whiteboard that usually has grammar on it for good humans into a radiothon sign. But uh, thought I might spread the cheer appropriately distanced. How are we this morning? Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, it's a beautiful well. touch and photo taken. Well, oh, <laughs> 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 part, I think, really brings home the message Take of love. My mouth isn't open. Yeah, yeah we'll do it again. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's real bad, Daniel. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's unpleasant. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm here Morning. Not just to, to say that Radiothon is good and everyone should subscribe, uh, but to talk about Zadie Smith's uh, new book, uh, Intimations, Six Essays. Uh, so Zadie Smith is a British author. She's probably best known for her fiction work, but she's also a wonderful essayist and she's also the tenured professor of creative writing at NYU. She released her first novel in 2000, uh, it was called White Teeth, and she was in her early 20s and that's very intimidating you know, someone releasing a 500-page novel when they're in their 20s. It's crazy. Um, and she generally takes a few years between books. Last year, she released a book of short stories called Grand Central, um, and I was really surprised and delighted to see a new release from her um, that just got released at the end of July. So this is a series of essays that she started writing around the beginning of COVID, like February, March sort of thing, and then finished immediately after George Floyd was murdered. And so she kind of travels the last six months of lockdown through her personal reflections, but also touches on class and and race as she is a woman of colour. Um, and I don't often look for books to encapsulate like a, a mood of a time or, you know, usually you might turn to like the monthly or, or something like that to kind of give you a, a sense of something that's current. But this book, more than, than anything else I think I've, I've read, has captured a mood 
whilst I'm experiencing the mood, uh, which is a really powerful thing. Um, and this is going to sound really, really bad for a book reviewer to say, so let's just roll with it. But I'm a big fan of her work, but the thing that really drew me to this was the page length. It's <gasps> it's like it's like 80 pages, guys. Uh-huh. And uh, Mate, speaking considering of- your average book length is 700 pages, yeah, yeah. Charlie Kaufman go for an 80 page. <laughs> I was speaking about it with a friend during the week, and she's like, oh, "I don't know, I'm not really reading much right now." And I mentioned it was under 100 pages, and, she, and her response, which kind of surmises so many people's feelings, was right, right now was like, "Oh, that's good. I really need a win," and that just <laughs> summed it up. Oh my god, that's so sad. <laughs> <laughs> but we're all laughing because we're all like, oh, you have to use a yeah, yeah. Can relate. Yes. Yeah. So most of the essays consider COVID from a from social and cultural perspectives. And it's also it's often via portraits of people in her neighborhood. So she describes because uh, she's at NYU, she describes her elderly neighbor walking her dog and it's like a little poodle and sm- and she's smoking and the conversations they have and uh, how society's changing and how her relationships with the people around her shift. Um, but there's two essays in particular. Well, actually there was three that have stuck with me and I've actually reread the book. I reread it yesterday because it's like you know, I spend longer with the paper on a Saturday. It's, it's really quite easy to reread, but there was this one essay called suffering like Mel Gibson based off of the meme. Um, and if you haven't seen the meme, it's, uh, Mel Gibson is, uh, directing, um, an actor who's dressed like Jesus about to go up on the cross. So, you know, Jesus is sitting there covered with thorns and, and blood and uh, Mel Gibson's explaining something to him and Jesus is very patiently waiting, you know, to talk next. And in this essay, she describes how the world was in the process of learning about privilege prior to lockdown. And so now when anyone discuss- discusses their, their suffering during COVID, they have to acknowledge their privilege and luck and how others have it worse And as I was reading through that, I thought about all the conversations I've had over the last few months and how all times I feel the need to preface that I was okay before covering how hard other things might've been for me. And even, even on radio, like I've, we've, we've all said, you know, this sucked or whatever, but then we also feel the the need to acknowledge that others have it worse or things might be harder for, for other people. And the way she covers that, it's it's like everyone learns to deplore the irrelevance of what hurts them next to kind of inverted commas real suffering. But Smith wants to know who gets to decide which suffering is most real. So a single person might be living in an apartment and may have never known such loneliness as now. A woman in the country with a partner and a few children wishes for isolation from isolation. So neither of these experiences do not not involve suffering, but suffering is different for everyone. And I thought it was just so beautiful and accepting and like a, a warm hug when she was saying that it's it's absolute relating to the individual and it can't be glossed over by by terms like like privilege and she's just so empathetic that it's just it's not relative it's it's absolute to whoever may be going through it and she does it with such warmth and kindness that I actually found myself feeling 
really heard and I just got a bit like misty eyed. I was like, oh, hmm. oh would have bored. If you misty eyed, would have cried my it was eyes you know, and at the same time, it all comes from a conversation about memes, you know, so she's really, <laughs> she's really pulled you through. Um, another essay in particular was um, all about George Floyd and um, she discusses racism and contempt through the lens of a virus and links that to the idea that the police involved in his murder thought they had herd immunity to prevent consequences for their actions and then she flips the idea of herd immunity that she thought through education people might be cured of racism. So in all of her other essays, her tone, tone is, is calm and patient and pathetic. But in this piece, she she seems really exhausted. Um, but that doesn't change how understanding she is about the work and the labour that, that so many people are, are doing right now. So th- in all honesty, the page length was a red herring because it really stayed with me and then prompted me to read her other book of essays that she published 10 years ago. Yeah. (laughs) She's a a witty writer. Does that, does that um, sustain in in this selection? Well, I kept, I I did laugh a lot whilst also feeling like emotional Um, because, you know, the, the the skill of a writer, you know, there's a lot of essays that, that are written by journalists and journalist writing is a different set of skills. You know, it's a far more direct style of prose. But but Smith has this ability to weave in the jokes because fiction is a different level of complexity. Not to say they're better or worse than each other, it's just different. But she has this ability to weave in the jokes and weave in clever comments and paint portraits of pictures, of, of people, sorry, um, in ways that that other essayists don't necessarily have that skill. So a lot of the wittiness comes from her observations of the people that are around her in New York as, as lockdowns becoming a more serious thing and how the wittiness may be actually comments of others. So the people might be saying other things. So the characters are saying things, but, but she's able to encapsulate the portrait so well that it becomes all the funnier because we feel like we know the people involved. Mm. Um, yeah, she, when I reread her other book of essays, um, which is from 2009 and it's kind of, uh, this era of Obama optimism, uh, she's really, uh, got a different tone, but in one essay, she talks about the craft of writing and how it's her hope one day to release a book that surmises a period of time in which it was created. And I thought, here you are, 10 years later, you've actually managed to do that. And you've, you know, and I'm sure other books will be reflected, um, will be published after lockdown and they'll be written during lockdown and they'll make us feel all those things and reminders of what lockdown is like, but they'll come out long after it's done because, you know, editing and publishing, it's a, mm. it's a more time consuming process, but, but Smith is just, pumped this book out so quickly that reading it now was a really surreal experience for me and a wonderful experience. It was, it was a really um, beautiful lyrical book that covered a lot of issues, but I didn't feel tired afterwards. Mm. And uh, you mentioned uh, the prophets. Oh, the prophets. Oh, I actually, I haven't actually read the prophets. I read. Oh no, sorry. The, I thought the uh, money made from the book, or oh, sorry, yes, the prophets of the book. Sorry, um, I was thinking, is that a book I haven't read? Oh my god. <laughs> 
I was like, oh, is there something I'm Full missing? Full thing. Dang, you were already done to you. I was like, there are books called The Prophets floating in the background of various lists. Um, royalties. So Smith isn't actually making any money from this. Um, I don't know what NYU is doing right now, so her income stream is probably um, very flexible, like a lot of people's, but mm. all of the royalties from this book will go to two charities, the Equal Justice Initiative and the COVID-19 Emergency Relief Fund for New York. So, yeah, she's she's doing all the good things, Zadie Smith. Uh, intimations, a cultural marker for 2020 by Zadie Smith. Sorry, was there something else you wanted to add? No, no, it's just really good. Get yeah. Uh, <laughs> Fair right. Thanks heaps. Talk again soon. Thanks, guys. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Gillian Newen is a Melbourne-based actor seen recently in the true history of the Kelly Gang and who now stars in the four-part SBS drama filmed and set locally called Hungry Ghosts. And ahead of the show's premiere on Monday, the actor joins us now. Gillian, welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks, guys. Happy to be here. Um, can you tell us about the Hungry Ghost Festival and the, the series that it's inspired? So the Hungry Ghost Festival is um, celebrated across Asia, Japan to Korea, Philippines, Vietnam. Um, it's the one time of the year where they have all these really rich, interesting cultural practices. Imagine like a really, it's almost like that carnival thing in Brazil, but mm. not as not as sexy. <laughs> um, but yeah, because in our culture, like, you know, ghosts and spirits are a part of your everyday life. Um, you know, so our our show explores um, the one time of the year where the ghosts come back and haunt for, um, three Australian Vietnamese families, but there's also a few Anglo characters who get haunted too, so... Nobody's safe. Nobody's <laughs> safe, guys. <laughs> it's not just Asians who get haunted. <laughs> and um, your would it be fair to characterise your character as, um, you know, on some level disturbing? Um. Well, there are scenes that are seem that are quite, you know, like what what was your first day at work like, for instance? <laughs> Have you watched it? You've watched yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, thanks so much, guys. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, my my first day on set, I um, had an exorcism with um, <laughs> uh, with a monk, and there was about I think fifty, sixty people on set, and I had rehearsed this whole dance for it. You know, I did heaps of research watching like footage like really like dodgy footage from on youtube like iphone footage of like people Ooh. having exorcisms <gasps> and it's and you oh my god guys you should seriously watch them i don't it watch it's terrifying no but you, honestly because it's not like because i didn't want because my character gets possessed mm. and i didn't want it to be this whole like hollywood like you know like uh, it's all that stuff, it's so theatrical. But when you watch this footage in Asia, it's so fucking creepy because <laughs> you're like, is it, like, this is real, like this person is possessed. So anyway, so I had this whole dance rehearse, like, you know, my beat to beat. I got there and then the monk that got hired for the job rocks up with his translator and he's like, he, he thought he was just like doing voiceover or something and he pulls out. He pulls out an hour before we're meant to shoot and he's speaking Vietnamese. He's like, this is inappropriate. I can't do this. So 
Yeah. And, and all the producers were just like scrambling, figuring out what to do. And we were, <laughs> and then um, they spoke to the master of the temple. It, it was a temple in Faulkner in Melbourne. And the guy's like, yeah, I'll do it. So, um, yeah, I got wow. exercised about, I think about 16 times. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. I know. I'm like, was I actually exercised or? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Ultimately possessed by the end of that. <laughs> I know. Was it a fun um, character to play? It was. Can I swear in this pod? On this? Well, you already have, so. Oh, yeah. okay. Oh, I have a, oh shit. <laughs> um, yeah, it was fucking awesome. Like. <laughs> Because you don't really, like, historically, in unless you're watching, like, a Bong Joon-ho film or something, a lot of Asian women in, like, Western media, there's a few in the past few years, but mostly they're not that interesting. They're one-dimensional, stereotypical, but she was a fucking active character who, I loved it. Like, it was, she was evil, she was innocent, she was repressed. She was like a yeah. woman, young woman, mm. you know? Um, well, you've written previously about... Uh, Asian-Australian representation. How important is Hungry Ghost in uh, reflecting the change or a change? Um, well, it's the biggest Asian-Australian cast. I I really think we're at, like, a tipping point. You know, right now it's, like, first cast, first family, first... It's Right now it's the period of the first. Um, and it's also, like, it's... <laughs> I'll probably cry. Um, but it's, you know, like my, it's, it's also honoring and my parents' story, my grandparents, all the other people who, and it's only four episodes. Like if we had more, but um, yeah, there's just so much of, of more of Australian stories that haven't been told. And this is one of them, you know, like, yeah, it's, it's very emotional for all of us. It's not just another TV show. It's not, a perfect TV show, but it's definitely the beginning of, um, yeah, more, more stories from the Asian diaspora. Mm. Mm. Um, and what do you, what do your have your parents seen the show? Uh, <laughs> I linked my mum a few, and but she just skipped straight to like episode three. She's like, "Which one are you in the most?" <laughs> like, you can't do that. You need to watch the whole thing. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> well, you really do need the first two to get the third, don't you? Yeah. She, all she cares about if I look pretty or not. <laughs> you know, she's like, good makeup, good makeup, good hair, good hair. Because she can't understand it. But when it's released, it's going to have like Vietnamese subtitles, Chinese, Arabic. So for anyone who's listening who's not like a, who has parents who can't really speak English that well, we got you sorted. Yeah. You saying before you came on here, you you were well prepared for um, the pandemic uh, before it hit. But I mean, as an actor, as a creative, how is it kind of affecting you personally and work at the moment? How are you feeling about that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure about you guys. I think you guys like always doing your work right now, like because you haven't stopped working, right? The three of you, mm-hmm. right? No. Oh, so lucky. Um, I can't, well, I meant to be going back to New Zealand because I was doing a feature film, a a comedy when the pandemic came upon us. Um, But I've been feeling lost at sea. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm just, I'm just on the boat. So, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm I'm at sea. So hopefully there's like a, 
a miracle soon. Yeah. 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 I mean, I get it. Like, as a, you know, as a comedian, I've, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's like, I know I should maybe be doing something creative and I know maybe I should be doing some writing and creating my own work, but I'll just see, I'll just see where the sea takes me. Yeah. Just have to write it out, be brave, not sink, not yeah. drown, you know, not have, not have pirates. Um, <laughs> but yeah, all that stuff. <laughs> That's how it goes. Um, can I ask about 16th Street? So you, you're a graduate of 16th Street Acting School and uh, moved straight into the true history of the Kelly Gang. Can you talk us about that transition and what that experience at the acting school was like? And I know it seems like a totally different lifetime uh, yeah. with social distancing, but yeah. yeah, can you paint a picture of that chapter? Yeah, so... Um so I was overseas for a year and I came back because I'm pretty old. I don't look old, but I'm quite old. And I came back to Australia and I was like, you know what? Um, if, if I don't get anything like by age 30, I'm giving up. Wow. So, so I went to 16th Street for a year and um, drama school is very weird. I don't know if you've been to drama school, you've dated anyone who went to drama school. <laughs> it's very weird. Like, Oh, but mm, you yeah, get like, exercised on the first day. <laughs> well, I think well, everyone had everyone had to choose like an animal to research for a few weeks, and on the first week, we had to become our animal. <laughs> like honestly, like I was on all fours, and I think I chose like a jaguar, and I was like licking my paw. And, like, <laughs> and like, it's drama school is so weird. Um, uh, but but I was all, but I was like you know what like chill like surely this is your destiny like don't give up stay in drama school like don't give up and then and then um, but but I believe in miracles and and I believe in destiny right and I used to work at an Australian fashion shop like and I served the costume designer of the Cali Gang and I, I'm not actually in it that much I'm in it for like. I was in two scenes initially. It's, it's like a tiny, tiny role. But, um, yeah, so I met her and then I auditioned for it. Like, it, it's very much a man's film. Um, and then she put me forward and then, and then in, but then after that and then, like, I got the film with Ivan Sen and then, yeah, life's really changed but hasn't changed. Mm. Um, but, yeah. Uh- but licking your paw helps. It all started there. I recommend it, yeah. yeah. Um, well, Hungry Ghosts uh, premieres 9.30pm Monday, the 24th of August. It goes through to Thursday, the 27th of August on SBS. Um, start with episode one before you get to episode three. Uh, they'll be available at SBS On Demand each day at the same time as broadcast. And we've been speaking with uh, actor in the series, Gillian Ewan. Thanks so much, Gillian. Thanks so much, guys. Triple R. Bill Ross and Turner Ross are an award-winning duo of American directors whose latest film, Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, made its premiere at Sundance this year and is screening right now as part of Myth. It's billed as depicting regulars gathered at an off-strip Las Vegas bar in 2016 for one last hurrah before it shuts for good, with the directors there to capture the bittersweet memories over a night of drinking to commiserate and celebrate. On the line to discuss their film, we're joined by Bill and Turner Ross. Welcome, both of you, to Breakfasters. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. All the way from New Orleans. Now, it's uh, Bloody Nose Empty Pockets is promoted in part as a feature documentary and a snapshot of Las Vegas in 2016 before the election, but that's not quite the case, is it? <laughs> well, 
we did we did not bill it as a documentary. We just call it a movie. So uh, people really love their categories, though. So yeah, <laughs> just trying to make these movies, and uh, yeah, I mean, we make our stuff the way that we do, and uh, certainly it is a document of an experience, but uh, it's also something that uh, you know, we motivated into happening. So, mm. well, tell us about the uh, the experience of shooting this film. What what did you capture? Sure. Uh, well, it was a scenario in which we set up. Uh, it was a bar here in New Orleans, um, and uh, we cast it with folks primarily from here. Um, and we kind of wound it up and, and let it go, and we documented what un- what unfolded uh, over the co- course of about eighteen hours. That's the simple answer. That there's there's a bit more to it, but um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and to what degree is it scripted? Is it scripted at all? Did you are there beats to the film? Yeah, I'd say you know it's scripted in the sense that we cast a location, we cast the characters, we built out the space, and we had an idea of the intention and the hoped for result. But mm-hmm. within that, um, apart from some 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 imparted stimuli uh, that the the cast was unaware of, they really were responding to their environment and to each other in real time. Yeah, are you able to talk about how you? what the casting process was like because you effectively just went around to bars right in in New Orleans and and looked for characters is that correct that is correct yeah yeah, the long and short of it basically I mean we we you know from from years of experience in meeting uh notables luminaries and all-stars we uh we, we brought a few of them into it and uh and then yeah we had dozens of casting sessions in bars around the city and so eventually what you end up with is something that's not unlike a bar in Las Vegas or in New Orleans where you have sort of a ragtag group of folks from all different backgrounds. And uh, and that's what we really wanted is we, we wanted a diversity of backgrounds so that each people, each person, each bar stool was inhabited by a unique character with a, a unique viewpoint. Mm. When, when you were doing the, the casting, did you have like an eye, you know, because the, the there's so many cliches in uh-huh. like of these characters, did you go out to like find the philosopher, I guess, or did you just kind of meet Michael and go, ah, oh, he's in? <laughs> well, I guess there was a bit of the aha, he's in, uh, she's in uh, aspect to it. But no, we uh, as we sit here in our office, we had uh, you know all over the walls the types that we were looking for, like sort of archetypes, um, you know, like. Who, who's the person that's, you know, in, in that in that stool at the end of the bar that's, you know, there every day at 10 a.m. Um, so, yeah, we, we sort of had uh, archetypes that we were looking for. But, yeah, there were also folks that we encountered where we said, well, that's that's quite a movie character. And we there. wanted that multidimensionality as well. And so while, you know, certainly we were casting for archetype and hoping to build out a dynamic space, these are real people, you know, who, who have had very lived experiences. And so they're they're offering something that is not just a one dimensional placeholder. They're there's they're speaking from from real experience. Mm, and um, naturally, it's shot in a bar anywhere in the world. So there's an Australian in it. <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean, well that's what happens when you go and cast in a bar there's very much <laughs> friendly australian there who's in I, you know i think john told us that when we first met him uh, yeah. like well that's the cliche that you know any bar you're in there's an australian <laughs> so, and um well, I mean, it's 
It's it's so interesting because it's especially in Melbourne right now, and I presume you guys are supposed to be in town. Well, that would that would have been the plan, but uh, it's it's so bittersweet to see people gathered in an establishment that we're not allowed to right now. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, we were really hoping to be there imbibing with all of you and uh, brother John, who is uh, there in your vicinity and, uh, and getting a, a dose of what you all do. Mm-hmm. Um, can can we uh, talk a little bit about your careers? So you you both sort of had regular gigs in you know thirteen years ago in Hollywood, and then you took the risk. How do you conceptualize that risk and how important that move was, and maybe even what you took from Hollywood to bring into your own filmmaking? Yeah, we learned we learned a lot, um, but it was definitely a young man's choice. It was uh, you know we had nothing. So we just, uh, you know, got up and went, um, that, you know, that move would be a little bit harder now, but, uh, yeah, we just, we had no dependence and, and we knew that we could go back to the safety net of unions and good jobs. And, uh, but I wouldn't trade it for the world, that risk. And, you know, we, we didn't know if it would work, but people paid attention and, um, and we were able to continue working and we, we just really haven't stopped. And you know, the difference is that, you know, while we may not live as high on the hog as, as we would if we had stayed within the system, we get to make whatever we want mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> in, the, in the way that we want. And, uh, you know, and, and nobody's telling us, well, it, I'm sorry, it needs to really fit within the trappings of this uh, of this genre paradigm. And, you know, it's just <laughs> we're, we're free to we're free to, to do what we will, uh, in, you know, and hopefully people will continue to pay attention. And uh, I guess speaking of categories, do, how do you conceptualize yourself and your own relationship? You know, we've got the Coen brothers and the Wachowskis. Do you <laughs> do you feel yourself in, in that um, pantheon? <laughs> well, we um, brothers, we, yeah, we yes, really are. Yes, <laughs> brothers for a long time. No, we, um, you know, we didn't know those names when we first started working together, you know, six and four years old. So, um it's just it's just always been you know we help each other out on our our, our projects and uh, we're lucky I don't think yeah. everybody has the same uh, sibling relationship but uh, we created the dynamic early on and we, we really are able to benefit each other and um, and uh, you know pick up where the other leaves off. Mm. Um, did it ever get a bit hairy on set? I mean, it, there you know it's shot in a bar. It's nearly a f- full day there. Yeah. What what happened behind the scenes? Well, the behind the scenes is what's on the screen. So, uh, you know, the, the, the fight that ends the movie, uh, you know, that 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 looked like it could have popped off. Um, no, the pro- I mean, yeah, there was there was plenty. Uh, my camera got smashed at one point uh, uh, because I set it down just for one second. And of course, it got knocked over. Uh, <laughs> The, the lens smashed, and luck, luckily we had a, a buddy in town that had the exact same lens, and so uh, they ran it over. Uh, and and certainly everybody had to leave that bar at some point. So, you know, while it was, you know, for all intents and purposes, a, a closed set, basically, on the outside of it, we had a, a really good crew of, of folks that, that work with us who were there to take care of uh, the wild the wild ones that we, uh, <laughs> we had in that bar. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised, if at all, have you been about people's like intense emotional response to the film? Like I've had people be really angry at you because they felt like they were going in to watch something and they found out there wasn't that. Have you been surprised by that response by, by film goers? 
No, no, and because that response, and that's, and it's an unfortunate byproduct of having to exist within these categories. We have been upfront about what we do and how we do it, uh, even before making this film. But especially within this film, we were not trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. This really isn't uh, us trying to what do they call it, like catfish people or something like yeah. that. You know, this is a movie that we made in a certain way, and we stand uh, we stand by that. Um, there's the alternative where when people aren't so um, obligated to feel upset by being duped at uh, categories, that I think people do genuinely have responses to this film, and some of those are, are really rather surprising and beautiful. You know, we had, uh, when we were able to show this and premiere this in person, we had groups of college kids who were really into this. And I can't imagine they've spent time or that much time in bars like this. And then we had a series of older people, especially grandmotherly type women who came up and said, well, you may not believe it, but I'm one of those people too. And, you know, I've been there, man, you know, thank you. And it's like, well, okay, that's, uh, it takes all kinds, you know, hopefully the door's open for everybody. I um, years ago worked in a bar that was open 24 hours and um, it, there is uh, the way you were able to capture that community of day drinkers and also early morning drinkers and late night drinkers was quite astounding. Over that um, 18 hours, how do you condense all that into an hour and a half? <laughs> Well, that was probably the hardest, definitely the hardest part. Um, Thank you for that compliment, though. It yeah. takes a lot of research to. to <laughs> yeah. Well, <Right>. congratulations. <laughs> um, yeah, we, you know, going into it, we thought that perhaps the uh, the edit might be the the shortest part of the whole thing. Usually, our films take about a year to cut, and we thought that well, if the bar opens and the bar closes, it's it's sort of a point A to point B story, and. Um, you just have to get out of its way, and it'll all, you know, cut itself together. Yeah, and um, right. that could could not have been further from the truth. It was the most difficult, anguished, uh, depressing, uh, terrifying uh, <laughs> edit we've ever had. And it took about two two years, and wow. and, and and you know, sleepless. Uh, every night was like a sleepless uh, night of like, well. You know, maybe maybe the wheels. This is me speaking. Turner was confident all throughout. <laughs> but I, I I thought, well, maybe you know, maybe we had a good run, and you know, this this is it. The, the wheels have come off, and it was just endlessly complex. It was it was just very 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 complex edit. Mm. And um and uh, the bar's still open. Is it a local of yours? Do you get to drink free for the rest of your life? <laughs> you know, when, when the doors when the doors open back up after all this, I hope so. You know. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I want to. I want to check it out. It's now on the uh, New Orleans tourist trail. I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I look. I, they're they're just so so pleased and always checking in about how the film's doing and. Uh, it's off the beaten path. Yeah. 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 You know. But uh, it's it's a great space, and those people were so kind to allow us to to to, to do that. And um, 
you know, and, and really it's, it's also posing as a different place. So it wasn't direct marketing for them. (laughs) So that wall in between is kind of helpful. You know, they can say, well, that's not the way it really is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, bloody nose, empty pockets, screens until this Sunday as part of MIF. For more info, head to 2020.mif.com.au. And we've been speaking with directors, Bill Ross and Turner Ross. Thanks so much for joining us guys. Hey, thank, thank you. Oh, what a pleasure. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. We're joined on the first morning of Radiothon by one of our newest presenters on Triple R from Read the Room on a Wednesday, Osman Faruqi. Welcome aboard. Welcome, uh, Oz. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. So excited to be part of Radiothon on day one and early in the morning. I mean, not early. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've you relocated from Sydney to join us. Tell us how you first, uh, how Triple R came across your radar. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for outing me as not not a Melbourneian. <laughs> no, um, no, no. <laughs> but um, no, I've actually had a had a had a long relationship with um with with the station and and with the breakfasters in particular. My uh, old housemate in Sydney, Scotty, um, is a long term Melbourne resident and was such a fan of of the show. And I remember um on of, of the station generally. I remember on weekends he'd just have it playing, and I'd be like, "What? I have no idea what this is. It sounds fantastic. Is this?" It's like a playlist. Is this a show you're streaming from somewhere around the world? This all sounds so great. He's like, ah, oh, this is Melbourne's best radio station, Triple R. You should, um, you should get on it. And so we would wake up listening to to the breakfasts. And when I moved to Melbourne at the start of this year, I actually remember tweeting something like, my Melbourne, you know, my Melbourne bucket list uh, would be would be one day, you know, appearing on this station. And now wow. all of a sudden, I've got a show, which is super exciting, and I'm super yeah. uh, thankful and lucky. I remember that tweet. You wrote that your dream <laughs> was to become uh, a presenter, have a show on Triple R, and be a comedian. Um, <laughs> and I was like, hey, I'm both of those things. Here to help. Well, you're my um, role model, obviously. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and but you've, you know, you've worked as a journalist for for ages across so many different platforms. Um, what is it about Triple R that you find liberating and fun and, and, you know, presenting on Read the Room. What does that give you? Yes, I actually got my um, start in journalism on a community radio show, uh, community radio station, Sydney FBI. Um, and I used to produce and present for their news and current affairs show, Backchat. And that was a really awesome experience. And it taught me how important community radio is to like, you know, the, the media landscape, but also the fabric of a city. It, it gave me the opportunity to learn how to broadcast, how to do interviews, how to talk to people, how to build relationships with listeners. And it also gave me this this sense of, you know, the way that a, that a, a station like that, and I think it applies, you know, even more so to Triple is so embedded within within a particular community, and, and for Triple I, it's Melbourne, um, and it's such a privilege. And you know, since then, I've gone on to work for a bunch of you know commercial media companies, the ABC. Now I work for another Melbourne uh, independent media company, Schwartz Media, and I guess throughout all of that, the thing that sort of stood out to me is how important it is to have a range of diverse voices in the media landscape. And, you know, during this period, we've seen such a contraction of voices, you know, even just yesterday, news of, you know, mm. Southern Cross Stereo and commercial networks um, losing a whole bunch of breakfast uh, broadcasters from regional communities across Australia. And if anything, that highlights how important it is to keep, you know, shows like this and programs like this, not just just as opportunities for you know idiots like me to learn journalism, but for <laughs> uh, but for people people who listen to it and you know feel connected to the world around them through through these shows and 
um, yeah, it's, I think it's one of the most important parts of the media landscape. I know that you moved to Melbourne in a, in a terrible year for um, getting an idea, a sense of what this city is really like culturally and our music scene, but between all of your um, political tweets that cause drama, you will often <laughs> – um, share your opinions about music because you're a really big music fan as well. What do you think, I mean, have you been able to kind of witness the um, connection between community radio in a city and, and the growth of a, of a music culture and, and, and culture itself? Sarah, I'm so glad you mentioned my music tweets because I've been <laughs> trying I've been trying for years to pivot away from political mm-hmm. hot takes that just talk about music, but it doesn't yeah, work. They're, it doesn't my, work. they're my favourite. Everyone has followed me just like they just want the politics. I'm like, well, no, I've got some thoughts on, you know, the, the, the emerging, you know, African drill scene in, in Melbourne suburbs. Like, like let's 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 get on that. Um, I mean, the, the first night, the first night I moved to Melbourne after driving 10 hours from Sydney, a friend of mine who, um, who – uh, DJs messaged me and said, "Hey, um, I'm, I'm playing a gig at four at four o'clock. Do you want to come along? You know, I'll I'll, I'll get you into to the club." And I'm like, oh, "It's already ten thirty. What do you mean four o'clock?" And he's like, "No, no, four o'clock in the morning. This is Melbourne, dude. This is how the city works." And I think I think one of the saddest things you know that I've experienced is just not being able to really lean into the local music scene as much as I would have liked. You know, I was lucky enough to make it to a few gigs in that blissful. Six weeks I was here before lockdown, but um, through through starting at the station, you know, just over a month ago, I've already met so many awesome musos and DJs and people who put on gigs, and I can't wait to, to be more a part of that and experience it when we're all allowed outside. It's uh, it's and, and you're looking forward to Wednesday. I'm I'm stoked to be able to do my own radiothon, and I want to know from from you guys. What should I do? You know, tell me what to say. <laughs> well, um, I, I, you just you, basically you go in, you have a good time. You remember that this is at the end of the day for us. It's a celebration. Yes, we're asking people for money and and their help. But at the end of the day, this is the time to celebrate and have fun. Um, I mm. would recommend. Um, like normally during Radiothon, there's lots of – when the phone room's up and running, uh, the kitchen is also up and running, and there's lots of nice fancy foods to get into. Um, so I would recommend getting yourself um, a tray of treats to ha- to get into whilst you're doing the show. Maybe even just a bowl of Cocoa Pops, that's enough to keep us going. That's the best um, advice. I reckon also just play some sick tunes, like just whatever you want. Maybe like throw in some Kanye just to see how people respond to that as well. Um, are you stitching yeah. me up? Yeah. Um, yeah, also I would turn up to your show on Monday, not Wednesday, as I said. Uh, and I, know, I, was I, about, think... I was about to ask you, Daniel. I was like, what's happening on this? Oh, no, so sorry. Um, no, uh, coffee can be your friend but it's uh, if you drink it, but it can also be your enemy because I got one this morning and was followed home by the cops. So, <laughs> <laughs> which is a first Radiothon obstacle. Um, but, yeah, just lean into the passion. Just every subscriber is an absolute diamond and uh, just just wallow in the celebration. I'm, I'm, you know, it's it's – we're, we only do this for 10 days a year. Other mm. other stations around the world, you know, every day it's sort of a pitch, but we condense all our passion and love into this 10 days. So, you know, just sort of lean into it being an explosion of uh, of gratitude. 
then you can go that's... back to being bitter and twisted. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, I mean, that's the thing about doing the show, read the room, you know, where we talk about quite heavy topics and politics, race, culture, but, but doing it with this station and, and you know, with the amazing producers here has made me less cynical about the state of things. Like, you know, it's such a, a positive uh, community. And the, the fact that, you know, when you hear it on Monday, it'll sound so genuine, but within, you know, obviously I've been listening for a few years to the station, but just being a broadcaster for the last, and a presenter for the last five or six weeks, you're going to hear a lot of very genuine enthusiasm from me about how important the station is. So thank you for your tips. Uh, so Room with a View is the uh, slot from 12 till 1 Monday. Read the rooms, the show, dissecting the latest issues in media, politics and race in the colony. Um, Oz, it's so great to, uh, to have you on and um, thanks for letting us be part of your bucket list. <laughs> thanks so much. Good luck with the rest of the show and Radiothon. Thank you. Triple R. We're joined for Radiothon 2020 by Richmond Tigers and Triple R champion Matthew Richo Richardson. Hey, Richo. Good morning, guys. How is everyone? Yeah, good. Good as well as well. Very good today, actually. We last saw you at the Corner Hotel in December. Much happened since then. <laughs> it hasn't. It? Yeah, that that feels like a lifetime ago. I was sitting here this morning, and I that actually came into my memory that Corner Hotel. And seriously, it was that December. It felt like about three years ago. <laughs> we day by day, don't we? Yeah. What, what What is it about this year, you think, that has maybe crystallised the importance of Triple uh, R? Well, being connected to your community. I mean, it's it's so weird at the moment, isn't it? We're all, we're all at home. Most of us are working from home. Um, we don't get to see our family and friends. So I guess listening to the radio is a, a good opportunity to feel connected back into the community and, and, and have some normality, I guess, is one of the things I would say. Mm. In your usual life, you um, are a bit of a gig pig. You like to go and, and see live music. And uh, I only know because people always text me going, Richo's at this show. Richo's like, <laughs> I, like I need to know where you are constantly. Um, but I, yeah, I guess yeah, yeah. you've had that taken away from you a little bit this year, as we all have. What kind of um, – has Triple R provided for you in terms of music in your life this year? Like, have you been kind of listening to, I don't know, different artists through Triple R, or can you can you remember the artists that Triple R might have introduced you to? Yeah, I, I, one of the reasons I've always loved listening to Triple R is you actually hear some Melbourne bands that you just wouldn't hear anywhere else. Obviously, they get an opportunity to be heard on Triple R, and I guess one of the albums I was introduced to earlier this year through Triple R was the, the new Cable Ties album, a, good, a great Melbourne Victorian band. And, yeah, that's been on heavy rotation when I've been uh, running around the streets of Northgate and Thornbury in the last sort of three or four months. Uh, yeah, really enjoyed that album. And I heard it first on Triple R, and I wouldn't have heard it if it wasn't for Triple R, to be honest. It's not something that probably would get played on any of the other sort of commercial radio stations in Melbourne. And it should be. So, uh, yeah, that was one album that comes to mind straight away. It's so interesting because, yeah, Cable Ties played the first day of Radiothon on Breakfasters this time last year, which now is off the table. And I was re-listening to them playing live and it was incredibly emotional. Like, it was brutally good closing out the morning. Um, And, yeah, I, I miss it. But, yeah, Triple R keeps that 
energy alive uh, for me and for you and for all of us, of course. Uh, you grew up in Tassie. Yeah. Yeah, uh, d- d- tell us about your sort of media diet evolution and how Triple R sort of fits into that. What was that? I missed the first part. Your, your, your media diet, your, you know, of growing up in Tassie and, and now and, you know, how you've evolved yeah, in, your, well, in your media consumption. Yeah, I guess growing up in Tassie, I mean, we only had a local AM radio station, 7AD in, in Devonport, which which is what you you listen to. And then I moved to Melbourne when I was 17 and, I, you know, I was probably just a, a pretty commercial type radio listener, you know, I'd put it on the FM dial and whatever sort of stations were in, on heavy rotation. I started listening to those and then I, I probably met through my football um, some different people who, who had more diverse taste in music and, and, in, and in media and, and in news and, and what they listened to and, and, and the Gale brothers in particular, Michael Gale, probably steered me towards listening to, to Triple R initially. Um, and yeah, and then once once you start listening and you you hear the different things and you hear the different voices, the diversity, um, you know, that, the different ideas that you don't hear on other other radio stations and news outlets. Um, I just enjoyed that. I just felt like I was hearing more real people and 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 not feeling like it was driven by any big corporate sort of ideas. So that that was probably what steered me towards Triple R initially. You know what I'm hearing that. Richmond Tigers have really good taste in radio. They did, yeah. 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 <laughs> and Brendan, Michael and Brendan Gale always sort of listened to, to different stuff, different music, and, and, yeah, they probably were the first people that introduced me, yeah. And, uh, you know, you've got so many uh, f- fingers in so many different pies, but uh, if let's say, you know, you subscribe this year, um, where would you put your sticker where would I put my sticker? Well, yeah. I, unfortunately, I get, I, a mate of mine's got a got a, uh, a car yard and he, he gives me a car to drive around. I do a few things for, for him and his uh, clients. So I change cars regularly, so I can't put it on my car. So <laughs> I, would, I would put it on my football notepad that I take to the footy on Saturday night on the front, mm-hmm. proudly sitting there and, and write all my notes in for the games that we cover on Channel 7 on Saturday night. So that's where I'll put it this year. Oh, uh, good bloody answer, Richo. <laughs> that's, that's uh, and yeah, I'm is there, it, paid up too, guys. I just oh, dead oh, set. <laughs> well, they like be like Richo and pay up. Jump on rrr.org.au to subscribe. Exactly. Um, uh, before we leave you, can we can we just ask you for uh, if for anyone on the fence about subscribing, well, why do you think someone should uh, subscribe to Triple R this year? Oh, I just think it's important, particularly in this current sort of landscape that we're in, and I just feel like our news can, and uh, the voices we listen to occasionally are, are skewed towards certain ideas, and I just feel like if you listen to Triple R and Community Radio, that you can you maybe just hear some different points of view, and I, I love that, and I feel like I'm getting some different, different ideals listening. And then, of course, I'm a music fan, as I said, before and if you love music as well as, as I do, you're going to hear some some stuff that you won't hear anywhere else, and you know it'll really you'll be a lot better off for it. So yeah, there there are a couple of the reasons I would I would subscribe this year. Plus, you get a few uh, 
you get a little discount here and there in some great local businesses that you're going to support as well. If you want to, when 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 we get back to normal, you can go up to the Northwood Social and get out your card and you know get a few cents off your pint or your or your lemonade or whatever you fancy. Oh, brilliant! <laughs> and so be more public richo sightings that we can get over text. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, thanks, mate, and I uh, look forward to uh, to seeing you in person when that time is uh, allowed. Yeah, hopefully that sooner rather than later. And yeah, I encourage everyone to subscribe and, and support Triple R, and hopefully we see everyone soon at a gig somewhere. Melbourne's own Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast, The Best Bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.